Welcome Black Sheep, welcome South Asian women and femmes, welcome LGBTQ loves of all kind. My name is Roshni and this podcast is called Becoming Enough. I'm a self-worth coach and I'm here to help you learn to let go of your old life and the life that you built when you felt unloved and unworthy and welcome you into your new life of high self-worth where you know your value and you trust yourself fully. My greatest passion is talking to you about self-worth and this journey of loving ourselves and believing that we are enough. Get cozy, grab a cup of coffee, or get ready for your walk because this is going to be another beautiful episode. I hope you love it. Today we are going to be talking about something that I have been putting off talking about for a little while um, because I just didn't feel ready and now it really does feel like the right time and I'm more excited and a little bit finding it a little bit emotionally easier to talk about it and that is being diagnosed with CPTSD and how I've been coping with having CPTSD and with the diagnosis. So First, I'm going to start by just explaining what CPTSD is. It stands for Complex Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder, and it is a psychological disorder that's related to a series of traumatic events over time or one very prolonged event. So something that's different about complex PTSD versus PTSD is you can, they do share a lot of the same symptoms, but with PTSD, it's related to a singular event. It could be a singular act of violence. It could be a car accident or just one very distinct moment in time where something happened that made you traumatized. With complex post-traumatic stress disorder, this is something that a lot of other black sheep will experience. A lot of other, you know, children with narcissistic parents will experience um, or adult children of narcissistic parents will experience. So for a lot of people who are in this community, um, a lot of you may have a similar diagnosis. A lot of you may never have even thought about it, but you maybe can relate to some of these symptoms. And of course it doesn't, it's not black and white. It, there's not an, an exact overlap. Um, you don't have to have CPTSD to be a black sheep, of course, but there is a lot of people who have these kind of difficult childhood experiences where you were treated a certain way for a long period of time. And maybe in the moment, I remember thinking myself as a kid, oh, well, you're not being abused like you see on TV. You're not being beat up every day. You're not hiding your black eye when you go to school. So I must not really be facing anything that bad, especially when I was growing up. But with a lot of conversations that comedians would have or people of color would have um, who were kind of in the uh, in the pop culture space they would say a lot of things or make a lot of jokes about white people can say whatever they want or white kids can say whatever they want to their parents, but our parents will beat our asses or our parents will, you know, pull out the chunkla or, you know, whatever it is. And those things made it seem in my mind so normalized, like, oh, I'm facing this because I'm Indian. I'm facing this because I'm South Asian. This is just our culture. This is just what we go through. Then I would start meeting, you know, other South Asian friends who had completely different relationships with their parents or who didn't deal with the things I was dealing with. And then I started to get really confused, I remember, as a child and, you know, feel like maybe this isn't normal. So there's a lot of confusing messages that we get when we're growing up about what's normal and we don't really know how our childhood affects us. Obviously, 
obviously until we become adults and we realize what maybe quote unquote like normal kids had or what people had if they didn't have narcissistic parents or a toxic uh, family system. So there's a lot that you figure out way later, but that's what's so insidious. I feel like about a lot of people who have CPTSD is you spend so much time not knowing that anything's wrong and you spend so much time maybe minimizing what you're going through because it's difficult to see the full picture. And as children, you don't really know what's right and what isn't or what's normal. You just know what you know and you know what's familiar. So it becomes harder to know that you're experiencing a series of traumatic events when you're going through it. So a couple of things about CPTSD is that it's not actually in the DSM-5 yet. And research does support that CPTSD is a separate diagnosis from PTSD. There was an article in a medical news journal about how there were 29 studies from over 15 countries that have consistently shown differences between PTSD and CPTSD. So it is a little bit strange that it's not in the DSM-5 yet, which is the most updated diagnostic manual for psychologists and therapists. Um, but based on the research that we're seeing, it's likely that there may be an official diagnosis of CPTSD. Um, right now, the official diagnosis is just PTSD. Uh, when I worked with my therapist and was when, when I got diagnosed, I was diagnosed specifically with CPTSD. Um, but, you know, she also mentioned that it's not in the DSM-5, but here's kind of the reasoning behind why she diagnosed me with that specifically. Um, so something I want to talk about as well to kind of get a better understanding of what it is, is some of the symptoms that you might face when you have CPTSD. So number one is avoiding situations that remind a person of the trauma they went through. Number two is dizziness and nausea when dealing with the trauma uh, or even thinking about the trauma. Number three is hyperarousal, which is basically just constantly being in a state of high alert. This may also sound more familiar as just always being in survival mode. Number four is belief that the world is a dangerous place. Number five is a loss of trust in yourself and in others. And number six is difficulty sleeping and concentrating. Now, a lot of these also go with symptoms of PTSD, but to be diagnosed with CPTSD, you must also show the following additional symptoms, which is uh, problems with self-regulation, low self-esteem, a sense of shame or guilt related to the past trauma, and problems maintaining relationships with others. So it's actually so funny that, you know, not haha -ha funny, but it's funny that I have been talking about so many of these same topics, you know, struggling with self-worth, your self-identity, struggling with relationships with your family, um, or even with a partner, talking about feeling that shame and that constant guilt. Like these are things that always come up in my client sessions. And a lot of these themes I've talked about on my podcast way before I even knew I had CPTSD. I was diagnosed, I believe in early August. Um, I believe it was early August. I know it was in this, in the kind of middle of summer and it was in 2022. So I took, you know, a number of months to kind of just deal with the fact that I have this diagnosis and kind of learn how to, cope with it. And I really wanted to keep that information private and to myself. Um, I pretty much only told my partner and that was kind of it. Um, and then I told like a, a trusted friend as well. But I really, uh, you know, after taking a little bit more time, but I really didn't want to 
tell everyone or make it like a big thing. I just needed to process that information and give myself time and space before rushing myself into talking about it with anyone and especially sharing it online. But this is something that's so important to me and that's deeply affected my life. And I know how much it can affect your life and your healing journey. And at the end of the day, I'm so grateful and recognize that it's such a privilege to be able to have this diagnosis because it teaches me information about myself and how I can better support myself, which ultimately is is what healing is about, right? And that's even what healing your self-worth is about. You can't heal your self-worth if you don't know who you are. And you can't value who you are. You can't support yourself. You can't trust yourself if you don't know who you are and what you need. Knowing who you are helps you kind of mentally figure out what you're working towards, what you may want to avoid. And then being able to trust yourself is always that action piece of, okay, well, how do I take what I know about myself and what I know I need and turn it into something that I can trust myself to be able to um stick with, you know, and hold myself accountable for. Another thing that's really important with PTSD is that intersectionality matters, um, just like it matters in every other facet of our lives, right? There's nothing that exists in a vacuum. There's no problem that just exists without being affected by a different problem in in society. Um, But something that I did find was interesting is that certain adverse childhood experiences, um, also known as ACEs, can also trigger PTSD, but can be more consistent with certain groups of people or with certain ethnic groups as well. Um, And examples of adverse childhood experiences can be poverty, racism, seeking refuge from a different country, living in a country where there's an ongoing war or having to, you know, leave a a country because of an ongoing war, um, being subjected to violence, right? These are things that maybe aren't directly related to your personal family. It's not like your family directly caused these things, but being affected by them creates PTSD that is going to be different because of what you're dealing with in that particular area as compared to someone who's not living in a in a country that's experiencing war, right? So um, things like that will obviously affect uh, PTSD and complex PTSD as well. And there was a study done by Weiss, Schick, and Contractor, and they found that the lifetime prevalence rate of PTSD is 8.7% among Black people versus 7.4% in white people, 7.0% in Hispanic people, and then 4.0% in Asian individuals. Now, um, it just said Asian individuals. It didn't necessarily specify exactly where in Asia. I don't know the full details about why Asians ranked the lowest. I think that's really interesting, though, and I wonder if there was like a high percentage of South Asian people that they studied or um, if things like, you know, living in a communal culture could relate to that or could could help prevent things like CPTSD um, because there's kind of more people to lean on and more people to to trust rather than just feeling lonely and feeling isolated and feeling like there's no one to help you. But that's just a guess. That wasn't part of the study. Um, But I think that makes a lot of sense that it's going to be that much higher in Black people, especially with everything that they're dealing with it's you can't separate the experience of PTSD and mental health from race at all and I just wanted to make that point that intersectionality matters and that there are 
groups of people who are more likely to experience PTSD at some point over their lifetime than others. So now I do want to share a couple of things about how I've been working on it and what I've been doing to cope with it. So one of the symptoms that I shared earlier was avoiding situations that remind a person of the trauma. And for me, that really was true in my experience. I developed a lot of agoraphobic tendencies, especially around my senior year of college. Um, I was dealing with a lot of depression. I was dealing with a lot of traumatic events kind of back to back on top of my entire traumatic childhood. And I felt very betrayed. And then on top of everything, I also was being stalked, kind of. Um, I would, you know, find someone at my car, I would find this person at like a college event that I went to, I would, you know, walk away or try to be alone. And then I would be followed by this person. I would get my phone blown up by this person. They would, you know, sometimes wait for me outside of class. And it was terrifying to me. And it's something that I don't want to get into all the details of. But it was obviously very scary at the time. And because of not only the because of not only the traumas that I'd been going through up until that point, but then dealing with that very visceral fear. Like, it's not just a fear in my mind. It's like my fear has become embodied into a person, into an action, into a certain place where I know I can be found. And because of that, I started to feel very agoraphobic. I would avoid my college campus as much as possible. I lived further off campus, so that home became kind of my safe place. Um, but even then, I didn't always feel safe in my own home at the time because I had different roommates and things like that. So sometimes it wasn't even my apartment that I felt safe in. I just felt safe directly in my bedroom. And obviously, spending a lot of your time in one room, seeing a lot less of the friend's who you thought you trusted, um, experiencing all of those things made it so that I was very afraid to, to go out, to do new things, to enjoy my senior year at all. And because of that, I, I, it was also coupled with falling into a very deep depression. Um, because I just felt like I wasn't like anyone who was around me. Everyone around me was partying and enjoying this time in their life and having all this fun and just realizing that their college career was coming to an end and they just wanted to, you know, make good with with everyone and everyone was suddenly best friends and I felt so incredibly left out and alone and that's really where all of these like agoraphobic tendencies started. And so years since then, I have become a lot better about it, but there was a few a couple of years after college where I felt really afraid to go anywhere without my partner. Um, so even things like going to the grocery store, going to the bank, I felt terrified uh, to, to go by myself because I didn't want to run into someone. And sometimes I didn't even necessarily think I would see that person, but I thought that I would, I just thought something bad would happen, right? Um, and then couple that with little bits of like workplace trauma sprinkled in then I was afraid to even like be at work or like I would still go obviously but I would get like a sinking feeling in my stomach every time I had to go into work that kind of relates to the to the nausea and dizziness aspect um I would have different physical symptoms and just 
you know, I, I worked at a different job um, later on where I literally thought like I went to the doctor for stomach issues and they said that I had IBS or something, but I didn't end up having it. It maybe lasted like a month or two, but it was purely just from anxiety from this job. And then at my previous job, I also developed other um, physical symptoms and I started to deal with a lot of inflammation. My face would get more like swollen. I felt like I was like retaining water or something was going on where like I just felt like swollen, inflamed. I would break out in hives more often. Um, just kind of different things would happen where I would physically react a certain way to being places where I didn't want to be. And I've had to be very intentional to work against this agoraphobia. And again, I would never say I have full-fledged agoraphobia because during all these times I still would go to work. I still would, would leave the house, but it was scary for me to do it completely alone. The way that I started working on that and healing that in myself is that first I had to realize that if I don't do it, no one else is going to do it for me. And for a long time, I just waited to be saved. And I think part of that was because it's easier to wait for someone else to save you. It's easier to wait for someone else to do the work. But after time goes by, you realize like everyone else is doing something and you're not doing anything. It wasn't even coming from this place of self-hatred. It just felt like I was wasting my life sitting in a room because I only felt safe sitting in a room. And anytime I had to go to work, anytime I had to do anything, I would look forward to when I was finally going to be able to be back at home. And then once I got home, that's all I wanted to do. That's all I wanted to be is just in that one place. And I knew it wasn't good for my mental health and it wasn't making me feel good about myself. It was affecting my confidence and my self-worth. So I had to get frustrated with myself. Like anger, I always say anger is such a great catalyst for change. And I had to let myself get a little bit angry with myself in order to make a change. And then what I did is Sometimes I would have to, you know, drop a friend off somewhere or drop my partner off somewhere and I would start making like a little plan of something that I could do after I dropped them off. So for example, sometimes I would go to a bookstore because I feel safe in bookstores, they're fun for me to go to, I like looking around and it's something where I don't feel like someone will bother me or like I don't get catcalled in a bookstore like I would downtown somewhere, right? So I had to start with these very specific places that made me feel safe and that made me feel like I was going to be okay there. Um, another thing for me is we all had to wear masks during the pandemic, but sometimes I would wear a mask because I also, it's, in some ways, it also made me feel emotionally safer as well. Like I felt like I was less vulnerable so I could feel more free when I was in a public space when others couldn't see my full face. I don't know if anyone else can relate to that or if that makes sense to anyone else, but that was something that helped me feel like I could go to more places when, you know, things were starting to open up and it was a little bit safer. Like around, you know, the middle of 2021 is when I finally started like going to a couple of places here and there um, when it wasn't busy and things like that. But the mask really helped me with that. But having a plan to go somewhere because I was already in the car at that point, I was, you know, exposed to sunlight, I was like with another person to physically leave the house. And that made it a lot easier for me to maintain that momentum and then go somewhere. And by taking those baby steps of going somewhere that I know is safe, doing what I need to to feel safe while I'm there, that allowed me to feel more comfortable being alone 
in new places. The next thing that I did is sometimes driving somewhere before I had to be there. Uh, so for example, I was really anxious to start the last job that I had. And so I drove to the building a couple of times to kind of get myself used to it or to even like visualize myself being there to start feeling better about it and to also minimize any of the unknowns. I think sometimes when you're dealing with CPTSD or you're dealing with agoraphobia, there's just so much fear. And that was one of the symptoms as well is belief that the world is a dangerous place, right? And loss of trust in others. So if I've been betrayed a million times and I have physical, tangible proof of that lack of trust in other people, and then I also have this belief that the world is a dangerous place, obviously it's not very appealing to put myself out into the world. So going to a new place of work or something like that where I don't have a choice but to be there, it would immediately start building up a lot of anxiety and having previous workplace trauma made me assume that that was what was going to happen at this next place too. Finding little tiny like baby steps like looking where it is on a map, then driving to it, then, you know, driving there and sitting in the parking lot for a second, visualizing myself like going into work every day and leaving. Like I did things like that a couple of times before my first day started. And that allowed me to get an idea of the traffic. It allowed me to know exactly what the building looked like. It allowed me to figure out where I would be able to like a general area of where I could find parking and doing all of that helped me regulate my nervous system so that on the actual day that I had to do this scary thing and start my first day, I knew what to expect a lot more and that helped me manage my nerves so that I wasn't starting the day off immediately triggered, but I could kind of ease into the rest of the day, if that makes sense. And the final thing in this section of dealing with, you know, agoraphobia was just taking baby steps. So again, during the pandemic, obviously none of us could go anywhere. And I, as much as I love being at home, it also was affecting my mental health after doing that for like a year and my partner was home at the same time. So, you know, there wasn't like a lot of room to be alone. And the way that I liked to be alone and kind of regulate myself was going on walks, but it scared me to drive out somewhere. Like I a big part of what scared me was the virus, right? I didn't want to be someone who was spreading it. I didn't want to get it. And I wanted to be alone, but also figure out a way that I could take a walk. And the best way for me to do that was to walk around very close by. But by doing that almost every single day, I started to get a lot more used to leaving the house on my own, doing something on my own, feeling like it was safe for me to do that. And I would only walk outside. I still always wore a mask, you know, to be safe. And there weren't really, like, there wasn't really anyone else outside at, at that time. If there was, it would be like maybe one or two people that I would see on my walk. And obviously that left plenty of space for us to, to leave a big distance uh, between each other and make sure that we didn't get too close or anything like that. But realizing that it wasn't a job that I had to go to, it wasn't something a an errand or the grocery store or something where I had to go, but instead turning that around, making it a choice that I'm choosing to leave the house and I actually feel better when I've left and I feel better when I came back because I just went on a walk and it felt very freeing and I got to move my body and I got to get a little bit of sun and all of those things started to teach me that it was safe again to be out and my way of doing that in this like challenging myself to do something new but at the same time putting boundaries around it so that it wasn't re-triggering 
was really important. And so I started out, like I said, by just walking close by and knowing exactly where I was going to walk. And sometimes I even found that kind of boring. Like, why am I just in the same place all the time? With the virus, I I couldn't really change that too much. Um, But that's now inspired me to go to to new places when I walk to find trails that I haven't been to for a long time. Um, And, you know, now I've been going to the gym more and walking on the treadmill. And that's something that I never did before as well. So now that's evolved over the last couple of years to something that makes me feel more brave and makes me feel like I can trust myself even more to do something that is better for me. And then the final part of this is also making plans with other people. What I would do is like I love going to new places but going with someone else makes it feel made it feel safer for me at the time so I would find new places or new things for us to try and then we would go together and having someone else to do it with made me a a little bit distracted because I was focusing on the other person or focusing on our conversation but it also helped me create more comfort zones right because once you go somewhere, once you have a decent or a positive experience somewhere new, slowly that merges into your current comfort zone and your comfort zone grows. But because I was so afraid to do new things on my own, or I would just convince myself that I didn't need to, that it wasn't going to change my life. It wasn't that important to go to a new cafe. It doesn't do anything for your life to go to a new restaurant, but it, it does over time. And And when you're constantly having new experiences, that can be really enriching and really good for you. And I hadn't been doing that for quite a while. So to combine these new experiences with other people in my life made it a lot easier. And then it became a bigger roadmap of places where I felt safe enough to go on my own. We're taking a quick break from this episode to talk about the magic of self-worth coaching sessions. All of my self-worth coaching sessions are individualized and personalized to meet you where you are. This is really about finding you where you are in your journey of healing your self-worth and building your self-worth, as well as undoing the life that you built when you felt unloved and unworthy. And we really do a deep dive into how you're feeling right now and the thoughts and habits that are going on within your mindset that are continuing the patterns that you're living over and over again. Because a lot of us come from difficult or traumatic backgrounds, these sessions are not built for you to revisit your trauma or to talk about all of your most painful memories. Of course, I'm always here to hold space for you if that is what you need to do, but life coaching isn't about diving into the past. It's about meeting you where you are and seeing what we can do to make little tweaks to move forward. One of the biggest pillars of my coaching sessions as well is that you are the expert on your own life, meaning that this isn't about me telling you what to do or telling you how to live or the changes you need to make. What we're doing together is working on your mindset and building up certain habits or thought patterns that allow you to communicate with yourself, to deepen your self-trust, and to follow your own intuition. And the difference between a self-worth coaching session with me and a session with a different life coach is that I understand understand the black sheep experience and I understand what it's like to go through life being raised as a South Asian woman or femme. Our experiences are unique and it can be so frustrating when you're trying to explain to a coach or to a therapist how our family systems work. But my biggest passion is helping you see that no matter where you came from or what kind of family you were raised in, you absolutely deserve to be loved 
seen, and heard. Your first coaching session is always available at a discount. You can learn more about self-worth coaching at my website, www.bettygrewup.com. That's B-E-T-I grewup.com. And if you'd like a payment plan for your intro session or for any other coaching sessions, just fill out the contact form on my website so that I can get back to you with more information and a payment plan that works for you. You can find my website linked below in the show notes. Now, back to our episode. So the next thing I want to talk about is really how I dealt with the diagnosis directly after and how my life has changed and how I treat myself and think about myself and just the things that are kind of different since I've learned I have this diagnosis. And everything kind of falls into this category of embodiment and also taking things really slowly. So I know for a lot of you, you're probably familiar with what embodiment is or what it kind of means to regulate your nervous system. So a lot of techniques like that can be, you know, using mindfulness, meditation, breath work, or pranayama. You can use EFT for this. There's a lot of different kind of methodologies that you can use for this. And I've definitely touched on a lot of those like throughout my healing journey. I've done EFT tapping in my car when I'm having a stressful day or, you know, I've, I've used these things as much as I, I can, but I haven't necessarily made one of those the pillar of my healing or my embodiment practice. I like using them as tools, but not as something that I have to do every single day or force myself to do. I've learned that I'm not necessarily good with keeping up with something on a daily basis. I definitely have consistency with my habits and consistency with the tools that I use, but I'm just not the kind of person that can do exactly the same thing every single day. That being said, routine does benefit me and I've been learning how to incorporate a routine into my daily life, especially since leaving my job. I have a lot more freedom, which is great, but then I've had days where I feel kind of frozen and I sometimes feel frozen to the couch or frozen to my bed or just not doing anything productive and just sitting in front of the TV and I know that's not at all how I want to spend this time and thankfully the majority of my time since leaving my job has been doing things that are productive or helping me move forward in some way um, or helping me move closer towards my goals but I need to also include some room for freedom around that. And that's the other thing is I've had to really learn how to take things slowly and really let go of the idea of laziness being a factor at all in my life. And this is so hard because you, I'm sure, are someone who really values productivity or at least is in the process of maybe unlearning how much you value productivity. And I'm in the exact same boat. I've made episodes before on productivity and self-worth that you can go back and listen to if you'd like to. But there is such a deep connection between producing and being productive and spending all of your time productively and how worthy you feel about yourself, right? We live in a time of hustle culture. We live in a time of not just having your main career, but having one or more side hustles. We live in this time where every bit of 
your time and your day should be used to generate income or should be used to make yourself better. And while I don't necessarily disagree with that, I think we can go overboard because sometimes you can live just this perfectly like sanitized life, kind of like the whole that girl aesthetic, right? You wake up and you drink your green juice and you do your Pilates and then you like log into your remote work from home job and you have this beautiful apartment and everything's always clean and it's always perfect and it's always organized and then you have this like successful successful account where you create content on top of your job and you're making all this money like not everyone's life looks like that and for me when your life is so structured and I'm not saying that's not a dream life I do think that idea of life can be very dreamy it can be very beautiful it's very aesthetically pleasing but at the same time having every bit of your day planned out and doing the exact same things and not having room to be messy to kind of make things up as you go along that to me doesn't feel quite like real life and it's actually so funny I'm thinking of this TikTok that I just saw Julia Fox make today and I don't know if you've like been keeping up with this or if you care at all but um She's, I guess, kind of like a celebrity. She's not super huge, but she is famous. And she did an apartment tour and it wasn't necessarily like it was a, a bigger apartment in New York, but it wasn't fancy. There wasn't like perfect furniture everywhere. And it was just kind of like a regular person's apartment. But for some reason that created a lot of controversy. And she was saying like, I used to live this life where aesthetics were really important to me. And I used to think that having the perfect apartment and all this furniture was so important, but she's had a kid since then. And she's like, you know what? Like there's just so much more to life than caring about how good my furniture looks. There's so much more to life than having the perfect apartment. And if my apartment is messy and if I have things everywhere and it's not beautiful or aesthetic, but my life is richer and my life is more full, that's what I care about. And that's exactly how I feel. I, think having too much routine almost makes me feel trapped and I need to allow some room for spontaneity in my life. But that being said, I've had to really learn how to give myself extra time when I'm feeling triggered. And what I mean by that is sometimes it could be something on TV, it could be something that's happened in my personal life, but there are things that will definitely trigger me. And I used to always tell myself, you have to be productive. It doesn't matter if you get triggered. And and before I had this diagnosis, I also didn't know that I was more sensitive to this. Like I, I did know I reacted in a certain way, but I just classified it as regular anxiety and that's something you can get over and this and that. And, you know, that's that's what hustle culture teaches us. That's what the need to be productive teaches us, right? That it's just mind over matter and you push through these things and they don't really actually have a real effect on you. But this diagnosis helped me realize like this is having very real effects on my day-to-day life, on my body, on my entire perspective and experience of life and I do need to take it seriously and so what I do if I'm feeling triggered um, especially the first few times that I got really triggered after getting this diagnosis I just let myself like lay there I just did exactly what felt good and what felt like the least amount of effort and usually that was like grabbing a blanket or you know something soft or laying next to my dog or you know just laying on the ground or like you know in in my apartment or on my couch and just kind of breathing and just not thinking about anything and just 
refocusing and sometimes I would um, like zone out or dissociate a little bit. And if that needed to happen, I just let it happen. And then I kind of let myself return to myself and just gave myself that time. And before I would have seen that as you're being so lazy, what are you doing in the middle of the afternoon laying down like that's crazy. But to me, that ultimately actually helped me be more productive, even though that's not why I was doing it. But by letting my my body recover from feeling triggered, letting my body recover and return back to its normal state instead of trying to fight through and do everything I need to do in this from this place of survival, allowing myself to just take some deep breaths, relax, let it pass ended up benefiting me so much more because it allowed that survival mode to come to a close and I could at least feel neutral if I didn't feel like I was thriving. And from that neutral space and from that place of feeling more grounded, I could then start to take action or move forward with my day or sometimes, you know, that would be my time to check in and say, okay, well, have I had enough water? Have I eaten lately? Do I need to, you know, do X, Y, and Z to kind of take care of my body, nourish myself, and then let myself move forward with my day? And this is the thing too. Capitalism prevents us from doing a lot of that. If you have kids, that can prevent you from doing a lot of that. So I'm not saying that it's that easy for everyone. And during this time, like when I found out in August, I was still working all the way up until kind of the end or like the middle to the end of December this year. So All of that time, you know, I was working really long shifts and it was hard for me to find that state of nervous system regulation during that. So I definitely understand that you can't like if you're at work, you can't just lay down and figure it out. And ultimately, being so triggered at work is what led to me eventually wanting to quit that job. I've had difficult jobs in the past for sure, especially if you've listened to my last episode, you definitely know that. But that particular job where I was before, I kept being told that I was doing something wrong after no one told me the rules. They had an option where you could move the last two hours of your shift. And since we worked 10 hour shifts, there was like one day where I needed to um, leave after eight hours and I was able to make up the other two hours on my off day. So I was at the shift making up my two hours and right before the end of the shift, five minutes before the shift, I went to the bathroom. When I came back to work on my next regularly scheduled day, I got in a ton of trouble for using the bathroom during a shift that was a two hour shift. And no one had told me that that was the case, but there were different multiple different instances of that where I would continually get in trouble and have to like agree to not getting like agree to this new rule but I was never told the rule in the first place and if I was I would have just followed it it wouldn't have been that big of a deal and so with things popping up like that it constantly triggered these like childhood memories of you're always doing something wrong you're walking on eggshells you never know what the rules are you never know when you're going to get in trouble and a lot of that kept repeating itself throughout my position there right Um, something else that kept happening is that our entire metrics, our entire commission process, the the way that we were, um, you know, seen as being productive or seen as being valuable at this job constantly was changing. And it made it so a, it was impossible to ever calculate your bonus or know what you were going to make, which of course, only benefits the company. Um, but it also was, again, triggering these feelings of 
being measured against a measuring stick that I can't see. And I think a lot of you with toxic family systems can totally relate to this because you've dealt with this experience of, you know, your your parents letting something go one day and then getting so mad at you for the same thing the next day, um, never telling you exactly what you're supposed to be or what you're supposed to do. And then you constantly find yourself falling short, right? They're always telling you you're not good enough. They're always saying, oh, well, you got like all A's, but you have an A minus and that's what makes you not good enough, right? This this concept of un- of conditional love is something that they used as a tool or as a way to train us to just do whatever they said. And that's the difference with these toxic families and with narcissistic parents. It's not like they're trying to raise you to be a certain kind of person. They just want to raise you to obey them. That leads you to not trusting them. That leads you to not trusting yourself. That leads you to not having any sort of stable foundation of who to be or who you are because they're not necessarily seeing these qualities in yourself and building on them or they're not even promoting you being one exact type of person and a really good example of that as well is that for a lot of narcissistic parents they use you as a tool for approval so they want to go out in the real world and everyone tells them oh your kid is so beautiful oh your kid is so smart oh your kid is so successful But then when you grow up and you get a little bit older and you actually have a successful career or you're, you know, doing these other things that people start to admire, then they get jealous. And so your entire life, you've been taught to look good when you go out and be really smart and be successful and make a lot of money. But then the second you start doing that on your own or doing that for yourself, all of a sudden now you're you're in trouble and it's a competition with a lot of narcissistic mothers and teenage daughters as a kid they want to dress you up in these little poofy dresses and they want you to be you know feminine and and they place all this emphasis on how you look and looking good and being skinny or like this whole idea of almond moms right and over emphasizing and worrying about your weight all the time but then as you grow up into a teenager now all of a sudden they're competing with you and they're getting triggered by your beauty and this thing that they focused on for your whole life and taught you to be and taught you to value now is something they're upset with and that's the trigger that I had that kept resurfacing with these changing metrics because I didn't know what made me good I didn't know what made me successful at at this position when that idea of success kept changing. And it's okay if it changes once or twice, but when it changes three, four, five times in less than a year, it becomes really difficult to feel like you're successful at your job in any way. And that's why I realized like I have to put myself first. Whatever is going to happen with my finances, whatever is going to happen with X, Y, and Z, like, yes, that's a, a point of survival as well. But at this point, I'll take any other option than what's going on right now because of how it affected my mental health directly. And so now that I've left that position, um, and these are things that you can do, you know, when you are working somewhere as well, it just may look a little bit different, but getting movement in and something that I've seen a lot of people do is if they're working from home, getting Um, like a standing desk and a walking pad or sometimes even getting like a home trampoline. Um, I have one of these like balance boards that I got for $20 or something on Amazon and I like to like it spins um, and you can balance on it and so that sometimes really helps kind of distract my body. Um, 
But now, and so I'll do, I'll use that sometimes when I'm working or when I'm just kind of sitting and, and watching TV and it feels good. Uh, but, you know, going on my, my original goal was to walk three miles a day, which I did for a portion of January. And I've still been working on getting movement in, in some other ways as well, along with going to the gym. Um, so that's been really important because all of that extra anger, all of that extra energy, it kind of allows it to to get moved out of my system. And then along with that, it also creates a space to boost up my energy, right? It gives me endorphins. It gives me a sense of confidence doing something like going to the gym or showing up on my mat or showing up for myself for some form of workout also allows me to keep practicing that self-trust that CPTSD dwindles. And then along with that, the food is really important as well, right? And this is something that was also really suffering when I was working these long shifts. I wouldn't even be able to get home and eat dinner until 10, 1030. Sometimes I would have to start cooking at 10 p.m. And so obviously that's not a great time of day to eat a whole lot of food. It also meant that I was looking for things that were fast and easy, eating more frozen food, and doing things that weren't necessarily supporting my health, which with a lack of movement plus not eating healthy it, it obviously isn't setting me up for success. Um, so even though these tips are very basic, a lot of like a lot of returning to ground A is what's really important. And the phrase self-parenting really comes to mind here because you do have to reparent yourself when you are in your healing journey and when you're dealing with CPTSD, when you're leaving a toxic family situation. There's so many things that you have to unlearn and relearn. And this is that process of kind of getting down to the bare bones. And just like a parent would find ways for their kid to eat healthy food, just like a parent would find ways for their kid to have exercise or get on a sports team or do whatever and get their body moving, it really was reporting back to those base things. But the biggest thing that was so important for this for me was finding healthy ways to spend my time. So even if I bring you know, if I download a couple of Netflix shows on my iPad and I watch that at the gym, I'm watching something I would watch anyway, but I get to move my body while I do it. While I'm cooking, I get to spend time at home and I really enjoy cooking, but it allows me to do something more creative and kind of enter that flow state when I'm at home instead of just freezing to the couch and just watching TV and not getting up and not doing anything, which is really what feeds into that agoraphobia and that depression that I was talking about earlier. The biggest thing that's a little bit different and not quite as basic is scheduling in a lot of white space or free time. And the biggest mistake that I made before, again, also related to self-worth and productivity, is if I was having a productive day, say I got everything done on my to-do list, then I would look at, you know, well, what else do I need to get done? What else can I add? I'm already having a productive day. Let me keep doing more and more and more. And what I realized ultimately is that that ended up setting me up for failure because any time I actually got everything on my to-do list done, instead of rewarding myself at the end of that with free time, with time to, you know, spend with my partner or my friends or do something for myself, instead I just said, okay, well, you got all your work done. Why don't you work more? That doesn't teach your mind a positive association when it comes to doing work. All it does is it keeps you in this loop of feeling overwhelmed, which then makes you feel behind, which then makes you feel not good enough. Breaking that cycle actually takes a lot of work because there's so much that you have to unlearn about how productivity impacts your self-worth. 
for example, you know, if I'm recording this podcast episode, it took me a little minute to write the outline. I kind of like needed a few minutes to to gather myself before I started recording the episode. And those little pieces of time, sometimes you don't realize that they add up. And over time, I would wonder, like, why is it taking me longer than it normally does to record an episode? Why is it taking me longer than it normally does to edit or to do this or do that? And I realized it's because I'm starting to work in a way that's more sustainable. And that means that sometimes things take longer for me, especially an episode like this is a little bit more difficult to record and took a lot of time for me to feel like I was ready to do that. So instead of judging myself for taking longer or for telling myself like, oh, you're not professional, you're not this or that, realizing that it takes a lot of bravery to share something like this and just letting myself handle things the way I need to handle them also does, again, build up that self-trust and it allows me to stop this cycle of feeling like I'm always doing something wrong. That feeling of always doing something wrong, that can almost get addicting. It's not necessarily the most comfortable choice, but it's a choice that means that you can experience fearless. And it's a choice that doesn't ask you to leave your comfort zone as much. And again, we're used to things that are familiar, not used to things that are good for us. And the last part of this white space and being more compassionate with myself is actually learning how to work with my cycle. So I'm still kind of learning this and kind of figuring out a pattern that works for me. But if you are a person with a period, learning what your menstrual cycle is and how it kind of affects the things that you do and what you feel inclined to do and your energy levels has been so, so important for me. Because like I said, for a, a, a little over a week in January, I was getting to the gym. I was doing three miles a day. I was feeling inspired and feeling motivated and feeling like I had a lot of energy. And then as I kept that up longer than a week, I noticed how much more tired I was getting after the gym and it ended up not necessarily giving me more energy, but it made me feel so exhausted the rest of the day because I and I started kind of working myself too hard for that time in my cycle. And so what I started I and I immediately started feeling guilty like you're already giving up on your goals, you you're not um taking care of your health, you're not prioritizing yourself and those were all the thoughts that started coming to my mind. But what I started leaning into was, okay, how can I not judge myself and be compassionate with myself? I want to still stick to my goal of feeling healthier in my body and making healthier choices. So if this isn't the time of the month for me to go on a bunch of runs and that's actually exhausting me, how can I modify my workouts so that I'm still showing up to do something healthy for my body. I'm still getting movement in, but I'm doing it in a way that's not stressing me out and exhausting me. And by learning that there's parts of your cycle where you have a lot more energy or where certain foods are better, um, or even there, there's certain times where you're more creative than other times or certain times where you might make better decisions than other times, times where you might need more rest. And so by working with that, and it's another way of understanding who you are and working with your cycles instead of forcing them into something that they're not and that they're not going to be because then it just makes you feel guilty and again it makes you feel not good enough when you feel like you're creating these goals that are setting you up for failure 
if you are a person with a period, I think learning a little bit more about that and finding a way to work within that frame can help you deal with that guilt so that you understand, okay, this is why I did the same thing that I did yesterday and this is why it's affecting me differently. And it's just like the phases of the moon, right? The moon doesn't show up with the same intensity every single day like the sun does. The sun runs on this 24-hour cycle and it's very intense and it can show up the same way. The moon shows up, but it shows up differently. That is just an example of how you can still show up and trust yourself and be dependable and be on this healing journey and make choices that are right for yourself without putting so much pressure for it to look the exact same every day and to live this life where there's no surprises and nothing new and nothing spontaneous, but instead to feel like you're working more of an ebb and a flow and that makes me personally feel like I'm dancing in life and not just forcing myself to like live a very rigid lifestyle. And so this isn't to say that this is the one answer, the one way to deal with this or the one way to move forward. But that's why knowing yourself is so important. Because if you are the kind of person that needs that structure and needs that routine and needs to do the same thing every day in order to thrive, that's what you know that you can turn into action to then best support yourself. And if you're more like me and you need a little bit more room, but you need some sort of structure, that can give you the information that you need to best support yourself. So this really is about self-parenting. This is about being your own best friend, being your own guide through life. And ultimately there is a path moving forward and you can recover and you know lessen some of those symptoms you can start exposing yourself to the things that were triggering you before as well um and then the very last thing and the last point that i want to say is that i've really changed how i interact with media as a, some of you know if you've been following my stories on instagram for a while now I spent a lot, I did a lot of reading in 2022. I've been trying to get back into reading since probably the middle of 2021. And it's been really fun for me to kind of rediscover this hobby that I used to love. And a big part of what I started feeling guilty about and then ultimately came to understand through the lens of this diagnosis is that I could only read very like lighthearted romancy novels or just very light like nothing serious is going on and part of that made me feel guilty like I need to be reading nonfiction I need to be reading you know books about race or books about all kinds of trauma and this and that and it's like I have enough trauma in my life I've read tons of books like that in the past. I went through many years of my life where I only let myself read nonfiction. And now I have to realize that like, it's not that deep. It's not that important. I I have enough traumatic experiences in my life that I don't need to escape into someone else's trauma. I needed to escape into a magical winter fairyland in a tiny island in Scotland where everyone's celebrating Christmas and in the Christmas spirit. Like those are the kinds of books that I needed to read and that felt really good for me. And it allowed me to escape my problems and escape a lot of the things that were plaguing me that were difficult to deal with and to do it in a way where I was enjoying myself through a hobby, but I wasn't letting myself get re-triggered because sometimes even with um, certain books that maybe people of color would write, like I always want to 
decolonize my bookshelf and read more um, authors of, you know, all different races and nationalities. But for a lot of the book recommendations that I would find online, there were so many themes in those books um, of maybe violence or war or violence against women. Um, and those were just incredibly, incredibly triggering to me that like I, I just couldn't stomach it. Um, the same thing with true crime. I used to love true crime, but after a little while, and this was actually years ago before my diagnosis, but I would watch it or start listening to these stories and have panic attacks or get extremely nauseous and it just it wasn't good for me and I had to completely stop watching true crime because it just was not healthy for me and it wasn't worth it to listen to a story that was ultimately going to affect more than just that day but was going to have a bigger effect on my life overall it's important that you're able to set those boundaries as best as you can and for me even though there's probably plenty of great books by authors writing about like war or writing about prison or writing about certain themes for me now is just not the time for for me to explore those because I wouldn't be able to do it in a healthy way and that's why you may see me like I'm probably playing like Gilmore Girls in the background or playing something else in the background and a lot of therapists like online will say oh watching the same show over and over is a trauma response and blah 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 but it's like I would like watching new things. I just, everything has some sort of bullshit in it. Everything has some sort of like violence or some sort, like even Riverdale or like these shows on CW have violence or a lot of suspense or a lot of dark themes. And if that's something that you can't handle, I don't think that it's bad for you to return to something that's more comforting for you and something that's safe. And I think like it's not that deep it's just a tv show if you're able to live a healthy life outside of it then who cares if you watch the same thing more than once you know and this is coming from someone who was never agoraphobic always wanted to try new things always wanted to get out of the house always wanted to read these you know watch these dark documentaries and listen to true crime and do all of these things like that was my whole identity that was everything that i was i was like this person who wasn't afraid to be you know, out there and who wasn't afraid to be edgy and who did all these things that were bad or that were dark and that I was completely fine with that being me. And now I've turned into this person whose identity is way softer and way more focused on what's safe and what feels good. And I'm still able to grow my comfort zone. I'm still able to challenge myself, but this is safety in a different sense. And this is safety and stability. And that's what matters. And that's what's important when you're dealing with this kind of diagnosis. So obviously I'm not a therapist, but I hope that it was helpful to hear just a normal person and how their life has changed since getting this diagnosis and what it's meant for them. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Becoming Enough. I am so, so grateful to have you here and that you listened to the entire episode. If you found that this episode helped you in any way, please share it on Instagram and tag me at B-E-T-I grew up. And if you'd like to support another way, I would really appreciate any donation of any kind. There's going to be a link in the show notes where you can donate or write a review on Apple Podcasts. Those reviews help me so, so much and they help other people like us find the podcast as well if you'd like to take our journey a step further and work together you can find the information on how to book a tarot reading or a self-worth coaching session in the show notes below thank you again and i hope you have a beautiful week ahead